0: Quarantine Spook Show of Kyle Caresi. I'm doing this show outside, and I think the high keys on the synth got some dogs barking whilst in front of a plethora of candles. Six out of a thousand, which is part of a longer story. But anyway, I'm gonna some titles to play some impro- improvised horror stories. And this first one is called The Truth About Lettuce. <laughs> been on a fair tra- uh, I've been on a fair amount of road trips across the country back and forth been all over the midwest been the chicago detroit dallas austin i've seen cats climb on tables sniffing out the mic being mildly paranoid if they would knock it over it's never happened to me personally these trips uh, in the Midwest. I've seen a lot of uh, pamphlets and infozines about various conspiracy theories. A lot of them are benign. Some are about Mothman. Some of them are about, you know, floating orbs and all that. The connections between Jesus and Egypt. Things of that nature. But the one that never, that always stuck out of my mind was the conspiracy theory about lettuce. It's on par with the creationist theory that all life on Earth came from somewhere else. A galactic traveler came here millennia ago, and then wiped their boots on our planet's soil, and then mixing with the amino acids, created life. But this theory in particular was saying no, lettuce was implanted on this planet. same way the bull toads were implanted in Australia, just like stink bugs, and arguably murder hornets. But lettuce is not of this earth. Now this theory didn't flesh out what the lettuce was doing on earth. A lot of theories some that it was a uh, biological life designed to spy on the human race some people believe that the lettuce had their own sentience but there are no clear-cut clear-cut answers for sure and on these travels back and forth between the Midwest I found an institute. It was simply called the Institute of Science. And they, you know, on paper you would think, oh, that's just a scientific institute, but a lot of scientific institutes don't have just the name of just like, oh, this is the in- Institute of Science, you know? It's like, oh, it's the Church of God, like, eh, oh, that's a little fishy, you know? When you look into their research... They do a lot of the investigations uh, that you would find in these conspiracy pamphlets. The whereabouts of Mothman. The quantum physics mechanics of these floating orbs that appear in photographs. And the red dots that that appear in people's eyes. But they also had research about lettuce. They had a whole branch Dedicated to biological life on Earth, and the Institute of Science was on par with uh, thinking. Lettuce came from other worlds, and at first, at a goof, I was just like, "All right, I guess I'll find out the truth about lettuce." take a walking tour of the place, you know. It was uncanny. It was almost like an actual scientific research facility. They had some pockets of education. Students that transferred over to learn more about their ways. They had a greenhouse department in this institute. I've I've talked to them, some of them, and they were just like, yeah, we think uh, lettuce came from other worlds, and we're going to figure out why now. And they said, hey, if you want to help out around the lab, you know, if you want to find out the truth about lettuce, you certainly can. And I thought about it, and still telling myself that it was a goof enlisted as a uh, part-time employee at the Institute of Science to learn the truth about lettuce. and thinking it was a goof. Telling myself it was a goof. It definitely reached a point where I was just like, no, I kind of do want to learn the truth about lettuce. What could it be? Why is it all spongy and like light green? Why does it come in like little balls like that, you know? I thought there was so much to learn. You know, Even if there was no grand mystery that they believed, I just thought, oh, maybe I can learn more about lettuce here. So a couple months go by. You know, I sit in on the experiments. They try to throw objects at it. Try to get it in different moistures. Try to bash it with a hammer to chop it up cook it in different ways, grow it in different ways. Any assortment you can think of what you could do with lettuce, they they did that. But as I watched these experiments, one thing that kind of worked me was they never tried to use the lettuce as a communication device. same way you can make a potato uh, with a battery, surely you can make lettuce like a telephone. The logic fits perfectly. At that point, I was at the Institute of Science for a bit too long, so my depth of logic and reasoning was a bit by the wayside. I definitely filled in a lot of blanks with uh, wild, crazy conspiracies. of logic that, uh, nasty beliefs can hold upon you. So, one day at the greenhouse, uh, I was actually there long enough, so I got my own lab coat. I tried to do my, uh, own experiments off the record, you know. I tried to connect it with diff- different electrical circuits to see if I could use it as a phone. One thing I tried was, a uh, in the morgue section of the Institute of Science. They had bodies there. What better communicator is there than the brain? I'll replace this thing of uh, lettuce someone's brain. See what happens. I drove a lot of the scientific research at the Institute of Science. Just like, oh, let's see what happens, you know? So I did that. I uh, got got a body from the morgue, brought it to the greenhouse. The autopsy already happened, so uh, you know it was the, the top of the skull was already easily removable, as the corpse's brain. So uh, you know, as uh, everyone was already already left work and stayed at their own beds at the compound, I inserted the lettuce into the empty cavity in the corpse's head. Back on the top of the skull But then before I realized The person just like woke up It was just like freaking out It was just like oh oh my god oh my god And I was like whoa whoa, You're alive he was just like How long has it been And I'm just like since you died And and the body was just like No no since I landed here What? How long has it been And I, I didn't know how to answer this question How many how many years has it been since he landed? I don't know. He was just like, What are years? And I was just like, Oh, this is gonna be a long thing. And I was just like, Alright, so you're you're lettuce, and I put you in a human head, now we're chatting, if that helps with any context. And then the person, uh, with the ball of lettuce for a brain said, You don't understand my people left me on this planet. I don't know how many eons or millennia it's been. I have a vague understanding of how uh, humans can use uh, the metric of time as a measurement. But there were no humans around when we landed. And I was just like, oh, well, you know, I mean, no offense, but Balls of lettuce don't really last that long, you know. And he said, No, you don't understand. You see, the way my species works, every species of yours every generation is the same being, you know. So if you take one of one ball of what you call lettuce, and then that piece of lettuce has kids, then all those all the offspring of that lettuce keeps being the same organism, same alien organism, I was just like, oh, um, I see, so, all lettuce is you then, and the body said, yes, that is true, and I was just like, oh, I guess that's the truth about lettuce, and I was just like, wait, wait, so you can, can you communicate with these, uh, alien people that left you? And then the lettuce person said, oh no, I don't, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I don't think you have sufficient technology and it's been so long, who knows if they're still around. I mean, they could, they could have possibly spread themselves through the generations like I have, but I have no way of knowing for sure. And then the, the lettuce person became woozy and started to faintly. And I was like, "Oh, lettuce person, are you okay?" And the lettuce person said, "What do you what is what do you use lettuce for on this planet?" And I was just like, uh, "You know, we uh we grow it in a nice little patch of garden, you know, somewhere grassy and nice, treated really well, so it grows really big, and then uh, we uh eat it and sell it to be eaten." And the lettuce person said, "Oh my God." That explains the pain then. And I was just like, what? And the lettuce person said, I can feel every piece of lettuce on the planet constantly being devoured. And I was just like, oh, um, oh no. The lettuce person said, yes, I can can feel the ketchup being smothered on me. I can feel the vinaigrette being tossed around with breadcrumbs being used as target practice, being used in a, like a food prank or something. You apparently have a lot of uses for lettuce. And I was just like, yeah, I mean, lettuce is pretty cool. And the lettuce person just said no. No more. When I am in the form of what you call lettuce, I am just simply lettuce. I can just simply be and grow and live and pass on from generation to generation. But if I occupy a human host, I can feel all of your metrics of pain. And it's, it's excruciating. I don't want this version of sentience you have. I just would rather be, and just be left in peace on this planet. And I was just like, all right, all right, I can I can do that. So, eventually I sat the this person down, and then, um, the ball of lettuce from the corpse's head and then the corpse went limp once again so it was just me and the ball of lettuce it didn't have eyes that I knew of but I stared at the lettuce hopefully it registered uh, my existence so on a whim when it got dark I gathered every ball of lettuce I could from the greenhouse, from the Institute of Science. and tried to move away with it. I managed to find a nice grease- greenhouse that uh, grew lettuce for their own sake, just for the joy of growing lettuce, and sold it to them so they can make good use, for- use of it. Then I thought of all the lettuce in the world. And all the ketchup being smothered on it and all that. Hoping that I could do more. But now that I knew what the truth about lettuce was, I just kind of thought what to do about it. This next story is called The Field of Deadly Daffodils sirens were loud that night. After attending a protest downtown, the police came down harder ever than what we were used to. What we were ready for. I don't like to admit it, but the most pertinent thing to do at that moment was to flee. They were firing tear gas even during a pandemic. Police cars were swarming all corners, set out to arrest every last protester that went out. hop a fence and leave downtown. Even the outskirts of that quadrant didn't feel safe. I had to find somewhere else. Luckily I knew of a passage. Uh, I passed through residential neighborhoods. And then over a fence that would lead to a field outside the airport. I've got across that area many times when I was growing up. But hopefully I could just cross that field and get to the other side and then maybe take a lift or a taxi home. contact people I went to the protest with to see if they were safe. But in the meantime I had to find some safety of my own. So that's precisely what I did. I hopped the fence and went into the field. But one thing that was new to me in this field something I've never noticed before That it was full of daffodils. It was nighttime, but it was still clearly visible. Daffodils were as far as the eye could see, which wasn't too far in the dark. But still, I could hear the sounds of a highway nearby. I remembered that highway. There was a bridge that uh, went over it, further down it. Back when I had a graveyard job uh, near the airport, on airport property, technically. There was a warehouse there. I would go there and uh, walk there from my house. It would be like 3 in the morning, and then when I reached the bridge, I'll just have a cigarette and then smoke on it and just watch the few cars and trucks that'll go by. It was a very romantic experience for me at the time. But in this case, uh, adrenaline was hitting me so high that I didn't quite feel that same romanticism. But I did feel that romanticism for the daffodils. The full- whole field of them. bandana from my pocket and wrap them up in my hand. Maybe if I ran into someone I would give it to them, give it to a friend or something. So I was walking through this field a little bit slower. Hearing sirens. And if if there were any daffodils that caught my eye, I would pick them as well. Eventually, as I reached the edge of the field started to get a little woozy, I felt like I was going to pass out, so at that moment my first thought was just like, oh, don't tell me it's fucking COVID and getting me. After all this time, after being as cautious as I was, then I thought maybe it was inhaling tear gas type of nerve damage it could cause, you know, maybe it was getting to me or something, getting to my head. But then I passed out. I remember the dream I had. It started off with the same oddness of any dream I would have. In this one, I was an actor in a zombie movie. And I played a zombie. But I only had three lines to do. And I was thinking, I don't know why a zombie has to talk. But also it was a dream, so it's like, you know. I guess, like, dream logic has taken the reins in this sleeping experience. And I remember being paranoid that I didn't memorize my lines. Because in reality, I never did memorize them. If I remember correctly, it was all gobbledygook abstract sentences and all that. Words that didn't really fit together to make any uh, cognizant meaning to anyone who spoke my language of English. Or even the vast cultural intersections that can encounter it. But yeah, it was just dream babble more or less. So I tried to recite these lines as I had a piece of paper next to me, trying to read them, and the director was sympathetic but he wasn't really having it. Eventually the whole set went to do something else and Hunch that would have been cut from the movie. It still sort didn't of occur to me that there was a dream at all. So eventually, uh, from this movie set, I'm just uh, walking home. And I think, oh, I'm going to take a shortcut through a field I know. through that field, what I notice is it's full of daffodils, which is something I've never noticed walking through this field, even though I've been familiar with it during the entire filming of this movie and this scene, even though I was only a burgeoning actor. So I think to myself, oh, these daffodils are beautiful, you know? I mean, I'm always struck by lilies or roses uh, when I walk by flower shops and whatnot. But there was something about these daffodils that were just so mesmerizing and so beautiful. So what I do is I start picking some daffodils I even use a page from the script I was referencing to fold it like a napkin so they can stay, remain intact. So I spent some time in the field admiring it. And I felt a strange sense of deja vu. I was thinking I've been to this field before. But I've never seen these daffodils, but it feels like I've seen them before. But there is no tangible memory that I could connect this sense of deja vu with. So after I spend like 20 minutes just lazing about in the field, I start to leave. And right when I get to its edge, closer to the street, I pass out, and then everything goes dark and foggy. Wake up. I wake up in a, in my room. I walk out to the fog. It was foggy. It was always foggy uh, in the mornings uh, when I would wake up as a as a windmill maintenance worker. The windmill that I worked at was right on the edge of a cliff, overlooking the sea. I lived at this windmill, near it, caretaking for it, as my father did before me. No. I always wondered why I never left this small town. Never going out to see cities, never to pursue a more extravagant trade, like something in show business. the windmill and then look out the window at the ocean I just think nah this is too beautiful to miss out on even for a second everything profound I can encounter in life can just be encountered right here so I was staying in the windmill better at molding humanoid humanoid, uh, figures. But this time I thought I'd try to carve a goat like my neighbor had. I've gotten close to it before, but I could never get those horns right. It's like oh that's why this is this is a dull knife you know I should get a new one I guess and I thought about putting it on my uh, infinite to do list uh, once I put something on it, it usually doesn't happen for another few weeks or even a few months but I was itching to go for a walk so I thought you know what I'll just go to the store and get it you know it's just in the other town that I know of. Uh, The next town over sells some great uh, knives and whatnot, so I guess I can go there. And I felt paranoid about leaving the windmill unattended, even for a brief moment. But I thought, no, no, this will be fine. It'll be fine. I felt strange on the walk from the windmill. I mean, I don't know why I felt at, at such unease, you know. I locked it in and everything. I told my neighbor there, like, hey, if, uh, you know, if anything happens at the windmill, let me know when I get back, you know. If anyone tries to break in or something, you know, I want to know about that thing. But I made all the usual precautions to make sure the windmill would be intact, even if it was for an hour, which was so rarely that anything disastrous happened. So on the walk, usually, instead of, what I would usually do is I would just walk alongside the main road that connects our towns, but my phone said I'd take a bit of a shortcut, you know, cut through some trees, a field, and then some more trees, and eventually i will be in the next town. So I go through the woods, you know, admiring its beauty and all that, watching some of the birds, watching their movements, the way they turn their necks, the way they chirp, the way they court each other by trying to fly down and swoop and get as close to the ground as possible, and then challenging others to test their feet. So past the trees, I enter the field, but then I notice something that I've never noticed before, that the whole field was covered in dandelions. field last week, uh, you know, on a date, so I don't know why these flowers would be would grow so quickly, so vast. And I think, oh, you know, well, me and my date did have a good time out in this field last week. Thought, oh, you know, maybe, maybe if I can bring her to the field, I can at least pick some dandelions. And give them to her as a gift, you know. So what I do is, I bend down to pick some dandelions, and then I stop myself and think, wait, I've done this before. It was, a, it was like, like I felt deja vu. But it was a much heavier and darker feeling Like I've done this exact same thing before Multiple times At least three But certainly as many as a thousand So I stopped myself. self-sabotage. A dark impulse to self-sabotage. To repeat the same deeds over and over again. And not learning from them because I keep forgetting they happened. I don't know why I had this thought. living by the windmill and the cliffside and the ocean gave me the space to think about these types of thoughts. But I just think, no, I should I don't think I should pick these daffodils. So I go to the next town, leaving the daffodils intact, even getting paranoid to walk on them. Then I go to the store and I get a new knife that I can use for carving and whatnot, and also for kitchenware if I chose to. And as I head back to the main road, The, uh, the date that I went to the field with. And she's just like, oh, hey. And I'm just like, oh, hi. How's it going? She's just like, yeah, good. I got something for you. And I was just like, for me, really? And she said, yeah. Check this out. So from behind her back, she pulls out some daffodils that she plucked. And then gave them right to me say oh that's so sweet I was gonna I was gonna give you the same gift you know she was just like "Uh, very serendipitous you know and then she said well why didn't you and I was just like well I don't know but I guess I still have some time to do so I suppose maybe I can surprise you with it or something laughs and I laugh and then uh, we try to rendezvous for hanging out in a few days and then we part ways. So I'm walking down the main road back to the town I've lived to all my life thinking about the daffodils in my hand thinking about the field full of daffodils. about my day, you know, the windmill maintenance, you know, I have a big dinner, you know, I have some duck and mashed potatoes, and then as I'm, you know, I'm going to sleep, I'm laying in my bed, I have the daffodils on the night table beside me. And then for some reason wanting a sense of comfort, I just grab the daffodils and fold them into a little napkin and then hold them against my chest as I start to fall asleep. And then as I pass out, my last thought to myself is, this doesn't feel real. This next story is called iPhone 2 Vengeance Apple Company, when Steve Jobs died. I mean, the insiders knew that he didn't do a lot of the real, like, work. He was more of an idea guy, you know. But also, he was the face of the company. It's just like, oh, look at me. I'm so, you know, we got iPhones and neat mobile devices and all that jazz. Steve Jobs died, the Apple company had a bit, a bit of an identity crisis, you might call it. I mean, they still made computers, they still made mobile devices, they still participated in data mining. But the sleek effect of their brand was at stake. It was getting to the point where people called it frivolous, unnecessary, inconvenient, just a lesser Microsoft. And insults of that sort. The higher-ups of Apple, you know, tried to restructure the brand. Tried to pitch a lot of things. Some even tried to cultivate a uh, a sleek persona, like Steve Jobs did. Trying to do the whole like uh, black shirt and sneakers thing, you know. As much as that style did infiltrate the tech community admittedly no one quite pulled it off like Steve Jobs so as people scrambled at Apple it was the same same type of hysteria that uh, people would search for Willy Wonka's golden ticket there must be a way to keep Apple on the map and make them bigger than ever one coder, who was newer to the company, he would think about it, but everyone tried try to emulate what was done before, everyone trying to be quote unquote cool like Steve Jobs, or to be like the Facebook timeline and try to integrate technology into people's lives. this young coder had other ideas so he uh, spent long nights, lots of energy drinks trying to solve the same equation that other uh, people at Apple did, but at a different angle so when he felt like he had the right idea he tried to convince his boss, who try to convince his boss's boss, we try to convince his boss to have a meeting with the executives. So this young coder uh, with his Apple laptop in hand came into the executive office. Was us just like, alright, got any ideas for us to, you know, to keep Apple sleek and relevant and hip and all that? God forbid we just focus on quality. We just wanna. We just want people to need us. That's our whole gimmick. So, how can you do that? young coder, you know, smirking to himself, just kind of thought, well, if you want people to need you, all you have to do is offer vengeance. And then the executives of the company, you know, just turned their heads in a similar stuffy way, you know, even though though they wore t-shirts and sneakers still had the same corporate stuffiness that any sort of corporation can have. And one of them just said, offer vengeance? And the young coder said, yes, that's right. You see, my idea is to come up with a new version of the iPhone, called the iPhone 2 Vengeance Edition. see, unlike other products Apple has released in the past, this device can offer vengeance. If someone has a grievance at work, or a grievance in their social group, or even a grievance with society, this iPhone can cast vengeance against the target that they choose. And the executive says, well, how would, how would that work? And the coder said, well, all you'd have to do is just insert the target, and then, things would happen. And an executive asked, well, what kind of things? And the coder just said, things would happen. And one executive just kind of started hysterically laughing. He was known as the more smug person in the company. He's just like, oh, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Offering vengeance? Come on. We may do, you know, tech companies may do data mining and mass surveillance, but vengeance? That's That's a bit silly. That's a bit too far past the mark, don't you think? Then another nicer executive. Well, how does it work? So then the young coder just looked at the smug executive and then pulled out his iPhone 2, which he already had a prototype of. Just a modification of his current iPhone. And he just said, well, this is a prototype, but let me just uh, insert some stuff. he was just like, alright. And then he put his phone in his back pocket. And then just waited. And everyone in the company was just kind of waiting, shrugging their shoulders. speech that ends prematurely to just kind of just, like, waiting and whatnot. And then the smug executive uh, spoke out again. He was just like, well, aren't things supposed to happen now, like you said? And then suddenly the door bursts open, and a pack of hungry wolves rush in, and then attack the smug executive. Tearing at his clothes, at his flesh, eventually devouring him, all of his organs. Barely recognizable. Needless to say, that it would be a closed casket funeral. You know. The other executives freak out because there are a bunch of wolves in here. And they're just like, oh my god, oh my god. And then the young coder says, don't worry, nothing will happen to you. None of you are targets. And then one of the executives was like, oh my god, what'd you do to him? How'd you get these wolves? And then the young coder said, well, I just typed in some things on my iPhone 2, and then things happened. One of the more uh, rational executives was just like, alright, I think you can. I think you should leave. This is a bit too dangerous. We're not really in this racket on, on this side of the ocean, you know? So, you know. I don't think we want any part of this. And then the young coder laughs, chuckles to himself. And he's just like, oh, don't worry. Nothing will happen to you. Yet. See, my prototype is operational. So I can set the iPhone 2 against anyone I choose. Doesn't matter if we're on this side of the Pacific Ocean. You all know this is on par with the company. This isn't too far from Foxconn and all that jazz. However, I wouldn't set a target on you if you had the same ability to do that to me. But I still think this is a great idea. I mean, isn't that what you want from a smartphone company like this? We just want to make things happen for people. And then uh, the other executives were just thinking about it. And it was just like, yeah, well, we do want things to happen for people. We want them to need us. And who doesn't need vengeance? So after a long discussion about the morals and ethics of the company, they agree. They decide to build and distribute the iPhone 2 Vengeance Edition. It starts off like any Apple release. It's always the diehards that wait in line and tents outside of Apple stores waiting for the next product. And even though that was more newsworthy, uh, after the iPod came out, versions of the iPod were in swing and the early versions of the smartphones now everyone knows that the people who wait outside uh, Apple stores and tents are just kind of like fanatic weirdos which you know God bless them you know if you're passionate about if you're passionate about something then you know go for it unless it's evil but you know but what does hit the news? Is when these Apple diehards get the technology and then they make things happen, sometimes it's wolves, sometimes it's sandbills, sometimes it's hitmen. Any multitude of spontaneous disasters can occur against targets. Than other people, people with older versions of smartphones from Apple, and people who weren't even Apple enthusiasts, started to catch wind of the services that iPhone 2 Vengeance Edition can provide. So eventually, you know, everyone gets, everyone gets an iPhone 2. And since the iPhone 2 can make things happen no one, wants, no one wants to be devoid of the ability to make things happen so, so they get these smartphones even if it's beyond their means And beyond their necessity God forbid that you weren't the only one with an iPhone 2 Because if you didn't have one, then people can make things happen to you without any retaliation. See, you can make a setting on the phone. So that if someone does things to you, you can reciprocate. It wasn't always effective, though. There were several years where it changed the course of society where political leaders were much more short-lived because people would frivolously set set a target on their phone to just make things happen to them it was the highest rate of political assassinations in human history even by wolves by anvils, rabies, all kinds of things, all the kind of deaths, shark attacks, all the kind of deaths you thought were rare, became much more heightened. That young coder became the next, the next uh, big tech icon, you know, like a Steve Jobs or a Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. made it his slogan. I make things happen. Things that happen. A lot of people died. A lot of people uh, became more in shape because they had to flee from cougars all day. Because so many people wanted vengeance against them. Vengeance against them. lot of people cried out about how there's no re- no legal repercussions about these vengeance things happening. How it's just like, oh, if you don't if you don't plot a thing on your phone for a pack of wolves to attack someone, how come you're not charged for it? And then legal officials would say, oh, well, you know, we wouldn't want things to happen to us, but if you don't like it, just make things happen to them. And eventually the iPhone 2 Vengeance Edition started a new form of criminal justice. It was no longer in the hands of governments or anything like that. It was in the hands of the people. How if they they wanted vengeance on a whim, then they got it quickly and efficiently. Tried to stop this system of criminal justice. This, uh, this vengeance whimsy that people were taking advantage of within themselves. They tried to uh, curate uh, wolves that repopulated in the wild to stop the vengeance, but if it wasn't wolves, it was cougars it wasn't cougars, it was car accidents. If it wasn't car accidents, it was just lightning being struck from the sky. So one day, the young coder, who is now middle-aged, was looking out his window in San Francisco, watching the city thinking about how within the 20 years since you released the iPhone 2 Vengeance Edition society completely restructured itself just like Facebook did before it, or even earlier versions of Apple or Microsoft or any big tech company Google, any company that's big enough to impact everyone And that's what the iPhone 2 Vengeance Edition did. He never told anyone how the technology worked. He didn't let anyone see how he coded it, kept the scripts encrypted. years in the company had no clue. They only knew how to reproduce it and maybe to improve on it. died not telling one not telling anyone his secrets how he managed to gain the ability to summon wolves on command or to create freak accidents on a whim ironically he died from a pack of wolves devouring him apparently someone wanted vengeance upon him and he had no way to curb it was remembered in the written history of communication technology from that century. And a lot of people and activists tried to eradicate the technology from society so so that people didn't have the ability to summon vengeance on a whim and to use it recklessly. But eventually, the use of frequent vengeance became normalized. Lifespans shrunk because of it. It made a lot of people more well-behaved, but it made them far from better. Because if even someone put on a pleasant front, still set a target on their iPhone too, without anyone knowing it. So, after all these years, after the death of that coder, who came up with the idea? the iPhone 2 vengeance edition the executives of Apple were all sitting together it had the same plight that they had after Steve Jobs died you know since the death of this coder to rebrand themselves in some way to recalibrate the relevancy so then one of them just simply said so what can we do for the iPhone 3 This last story is called Cherry Bomb. Trying to pull off, but I think I nailed it. It took a lot of endurance on my part, but I think I pulled it off. What I did was, I had several cherry bombs. So I had some friends of mine, which I call associates. We set ourselves up at every public bathroom available in the small middle school. And then we were when they were queued and ready to light those puppies off, I was at the office. Ready with the intercom. Right when I played the song Cherry Bomb by The Runaways, they lit cherry bombs and let them off in the toilets, and they exploded. In some cases it screwed, screwed around with the plumbing, in some cases it damaged toilets. But as the school was flooding and people were freaking out, it was to the song Cherry Bomb. The same hysteria that it would as if you were playing In the House, the song from 28 Days Later, during the first wave of the pandemic shopping hysteria. Very unnerving, very upsetting. But at the time, I just sat in the principal's office desk, put my heels on the top, and just started laughing. But of course it wasn't a prank. that I knew it was a prank that I couldn't get away with. But I was ready for it. Luckily my, my associates were able to get away. I didn't want them to go to juvie or anything like that. But I accepted the punishment because I wanted the credit. I wanted, to, I wanted to be the one to be known as the mastermind who set off cherry bombs all around this middle school to the song Cherry Bomb. They talked about different punishments. But I knew the loophole, since I wasn't the one that set off the Cherry Bombs. They couldn't send me to Juvenile Hall or anything like that. They could only suspend me at best because the only thing they could prove was that I got on the intercom. But that wasn't enough for an expulsion for a first-time offense. And it's not like this middle school's policy really uh, captured uh, conspiracies, you know. I felt like a champion about it. I wish I had a cigar that I could smoke. I wasn't old enough to... Get access to cigars, really, but still. Sometimes if I... If I could break into my parents' room and get a cigar, I'd be lucky. One of my dad's cigars, you know. I can never smoke a whole one, but I would never tell anyone else that. I would just say, yeah, I totally smoke cigars, whatever definitely took a lot of strife in trying to be badass and cool, which is what this middle school needed. Personally, it's like a Disney Channel movie when someone kicks ass in ra- in middle school, except this, except my version is rated R, because I don't fuck around. Now this principal is really stressed out even though this was my first offense of the school year. He knew I was a bit of a trouble student, a problem child, if you will. And he knew he couldn't expel me or anything, though he desperately wanted to. His office for punishment and whatnot. And he's given me a hardcore reprimand like I've never seen. I was almost impressed. But it certainly was enough to tame my wild spirit. talking so long and so loudly he was out of breath and he said just go wait in the just go wait in uh go wait in the foyer lobby area I'll figure it out I'll figure out what to do with you so I go in I sit in the waiting area I take out a lollipop and start sucking on it like an old school greaser even though we weren't allowed to carry our own candy which was the cherry on top no pun intended I could overhear him, hear him. I could overhear him in the office. And it was the first time I've ever heard a teacher or a principal curse. And he just said, oh, I don't know what the fuck to do with this kid. And he was saying this to his principal's assistant. So the assistant said very darkly. why don't you give him in-school suspension in 2A and the principal doesn't say anything he just says alright he just opens the door and he says alright you can come back in so I go and sit in front of his desk waiting for my suspension or whatever you know whatever he could throw at me I was ready for it I read the rule book I knew what I could and could not get persecuted for at such a young, innocent age. And he said, alright, so since we can't prove you set off those cherry bombs in the toilets and your alibi was breaking another rule, we're only gonna put you in trouble with that rule. And all we can really do is send you for in-school suspension. You'll just be spending one day on a Friday. Instead of going to your classes, you're just going to be in a little room, and we're going to watch over you. You can do homework or whatever. But, yeah. It's just going to be in-school suspension there. And I said, but Principal, isn't that counterintuitive to the education system? I mean in the 80s you know in school suspension was like on a weekend or something so the punishment was that you'd have to take time out of your personal life to endure a punishment. but if you just pull me out of class, you know that compromises any sort of education you're bestowing on us you know it's no wonder that so many people from the school district graduates illiterate you know if you just pull them out of class, how are they going to learn anything? So the principal, understanding this critique, and probably agreeing with it to some level, he just chuckles and says, oh, you'll learn something. And I didn't know what he meant at the time, but... Friday came, and I was ready for my in-school suspension, I had some comics that I could read some homework to do, you know. I was a straight-A student, believe it or not. It's just... I work hard and I play hard. It's kind of hard to critique someone's lifestyle when they're succeeding. Lesson for the rest of you kids out there. So I went in and surprisingly I was the only student who had in school suspension that day. So it's uh it was just me and a teacher that I didn't recognize. I think she taught a few grades below me. I was in seventh grade. And she was in I think she taught fifth grade, but I think she was a new teacher. I don't think she was around when I was in fifth grade, so that's why I didn't recognize So I go in, I sit at one of the desks they have there, and she looks around. Such an empty room. No chalkboard, no posters. Even other classrooms had like, let's, let's read kind of posters, but this one was just like blank and desolate. Not unlike a, an interrogation room or a prison, which I hear a lot of in-school suspension rooms are like that. So she looks around And then she says More to herself I guess that's everyone So eventually she takes a key And then starts to leave the room And I say wait wait what are you doing And then she says oh I'm not staying in here This place is haunted And then she leaves her room and locks the door And I just think understanding of in-school suspensions, you know, you're not allowed to read or do homework, you just have to sit in the banality of uh, the silence that's imposed upon you. So I'm just like, alright, fuck it, I'm just gonna read, you know, Evil Ernie or whatever, you know? So I'm sitting in this room alone. starts off as pretty quiet, you know? I don't think too much of it. And then I I could have sworn I heard a voice in the desk behind me. but I, I jump and it startles me and I turn around and no one's there. And I think, oh, that's bizarre. So I go back to reading my Evil Ernie comic, and it's talking about one of the many iterations of his origin story, where like he's psychic, and he has a best friend who's like his smiley face pin, who's also kind of evil. And he falls in love with death, so he tries to make the planet instinct. Make the planet extinct to impress her. Pretty cool stuff, I thought. I also heard that there's this arc where there's a crossover with Alice Cooper, which I totally have to read at some point. Eventually, waiting a bit, you know. I just think, oh, I guess this is gonna be an all day thing, you know. Glad I got plenty to read, you know, plenty to do. So eventually I get a little bit sick of reading and I just stand up, walk around, pace back back and forth. And I'm just like, nah, I'm cool with solitude. It's just like that uh, you know, that episode of recess when the protagonist is stuck in solitary confinement. Which is a really weird prison metaphor in a kid's show, but even still, I can totally handle this, I thought. So, I get an idea, and I look at the chalkboard. That's blank, and I see some chalk. Chalk. And I was just like, I oh, no, I'll just, I'll just draw stuff, I guess. Leave something for the ne- next kids, you know, if they don't erase it. There are th- some ghosts of uh, other drawings on the chalkboard. You know, old sketches, old doodles. I think I could have sworn I saw like, one caricature of a teacher nobody likes. So eventually I'm just, like, drawing random shit. And then I get bored from that, so I'm just like, alright, maybe I can do like some homework or something. So as I'm doing my math homework, I'm showing my work on the chalkboard. So I'm just like, yeah, this is cool, you know. And I just recopy showing my work on the worksheet because, you know, you gotta show your work for those math classes. But then I notice, on the chalkboard, that all the spots where I drew the chalk, it starts to bleed off the chalkboard. And I just think, oh, chalkboards don't bleed, which is a very simplistic thought to have at the moment, but it was such a shock that I couldn't really summon anything else more profound or intellectual or anything. It's just like, seeing a chalkboard bleed it's just like oh but but they don't bleed but there's a deep-seated fear from witnessing it so i'm just like no, i don't know if i can handle this i'm getting out of here so i try to open the door to leave and i'm just like shit it's locked it won't budge open Eventually the lights go off, and then flicker back on, rhythmically, it goes on, and then off again. On. Off. On. Off. As this continues to happen, I try to shake the door open, and I try to bust it open, but my weak little 7th grade arms don't do the trick. And I'm just like, shit, I gotta go to the gym when I'm old enough for that to be beneficial to my body, damn it. So I try to ram at it, try to open it. Try to go through the uh, teacher's test that's in there. Try to pull out some sort of tool that can help me pick the lock or something. But the chalkboard keeps bleeding behind me and starts oozing on the floor, and eventually I step in it. to go to the try to go to the door and I try to pry it open with like a screwdriver that I found. Then I try a paper clip that I try to wedge into the lock. But I'm just like shit, I did not look up enough YouTube tutorials to for how to pick locks. It's really something I gotta do. And I'm just like wait shit. So I pull out my phone and try to look up a tutorial. YouTube is banned from the Wi-Fi network of the school. Maybe I can find some other tutorial site where I can look that up. They can't block everything. Which is a noteworthy censorship principle. So I'm trying to look up videos, but then my phone dies. After swearing I I had a full battery, but I just thought, no, no. This is the work of something else. lights keep flickering. The chalkboard keeps bleeding. And I try to sh- just shake the door. Not out of the efficiency of trying to pry it open. But I just start to cry. And I just scream, let me out, let me out, let me out. I can't see any, I can't see what's outside the door. So I don't know if anyone can hear me. But then I hear the bell ring. and other students walking in and out. So the hall's full, so I just start screaming, let me out, let me out. I get some of their attention, but none of them actually pay enough attention to actually try to help me out of the room. They just like, oh, who's screaming in there? I just scream, let me out, let me out. Eventually I feel a cold chill down my spine There's something else in the room with me. And then I scream the loudest I've ever screamed in my life. Let me out, let me out. No one in the hall takes note. And they all get to their class and just remain silent again. It's not like those teen dramas where people spend an endless amount of time chatting in the hallway. It's just like three to five minutes and then it's over. Seven tops, you know.
1: I'm
0: just screaming, you know. Eventually I strain my throat so I can't scream anymore. So I only let out a silent hiss from my throat. And then eventually after giving up, I turn around. See the presence itself. It's just a cloaked figure with a sullen gray face. It has a lot of wrinkles, and they're all stretched further than human emotion can convey. terrifies me and I try to scream but nothing comes out of my mouth so I just sink down against the door to the floor and just start sobbing and eventually I wake up principal opened the door. I apparently crashed I fell asleep at the foot of the door. My face was still wet from all the tears I cried. So the principal gave me a very solemn look and he just said, Well, did you learn anything? I nod and I wipe my nose and my eyes and I just say, Yeah, 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 I did. And he's just like, okay. Good. Cause I thought you blowing up those toilets was pretty funny. I and mean, with the cherry bomb and all, like between you and me, that was that was some that was some good shit. But it's not about me. If I were you, I wouldn't anger the forces in this school. So if you ever want to try out an intricate intricate prank like that. Better try it out somewhere else. So I nodded and understood. So we both uh, walked down the hallway together. And he's just like, hey, you can have, uh, if you want, you can have like lunch in the principal's office or something, you know, something cool like that. So I accept his offer, you know, and the principal's assistant in there, and so is a gym coach, you know. The gym coach is talking about how, like, his son listens to Porcupine Tree, and how, like, Porcupine Tree is, like, the next Pink Floyd, which I didn't know, didn't realize it at the time, but that's kind of the thing a gym coach would say, I guess. So I'm eating some leftover pizza from the school lunch that was uh, sold that day. And just hanging out with the principals and the gym coach. And then the gym coach says, Hey, have you ever heard that uh, that Runaways album that Cherry Bomb's on all the way through? And I'm just like, no, no. And he's just like, oh, it's a bomb, you gotta check it out. So eventually he just starts playing the album. And I realize what I thought was a punishment of encountering me with ghosts and whatnot. It was really an initiation of witnessing of all the horrors that the school had to offer, which I thought was experiencing as a student. But really the true horror comes from working at this middle school. Besides the existential thoughts of working on the staff, Reflecting on your own school experiences And being all like shit now I'm doing the announcements Now I'm serving detentions After not liking them Now I realize that uh These uh, paranormal experiences Weren't easy to cope with So if they knew If they encountered someone else Who also witnessed them And lived to tell the tale they can accept them as their own. And then, as I got older, I uh, would always think back to that experience. But I could never listen to Cherry Bomb the same way again. And that was Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi, and good night.